one of the most extraordinary and marvelous facts, I think, in the whole of human history, is that God chose to live among people. It's mind-blowing to think that the one who not only created everything, so not only the one who is supremely powerful, the Alpha, the Omega, the Timeless One, but the one who is perfect in holiness, the one in whom there is no spot or stain, the light in whom there is no darkness, would choose to dwell among sinners, a people redeemed by him and chosen by his own. It was a choice that began right back in the time of Moses as God rescued his people out of Egypt and formed them into a nation. Moses would leave the camp and go into a tent and the glory of God would descend on that tent and the rest of Israel would worship as we heard in our first reading. As Moses would meet with God and as God would be present among his people. Now that tent grew into the tabernacle, a basically slightly bigger tent, but a place where God's glory settled, where God would lead his people from, where men and women could come to meet with God, to do business, to offer sacrifice for forgiveness of sins, to bring prayers before God. The tabernacle grew into a building as Solomon built the first and the greatest of the temples, again with all of the, uh, the infrastructure required for God to be present to his people, the Levites and the priests with the sacrifices and the cleansing, with the law given the word of God coming to them and through the prophets. A truly phenomenal and astonishing reality, but one that always had a problem. However close God was, however near, just the other side of a curtain, he was still inaccessible. Blood was required. Sin kept humanity from God. That curtain might as well have been a steel wall, impassable, separating the Lord God Almighty from his people. Now, of course, that problem, that so close yet so far problem, found its fix, its solution in the Lord Jesus as Jesus came and paid the blood that was required, dealt with the sin that separated the one who is light from those who are darkness, the sin that separated the one who is life from those who had chosen death. Jesus dealt with it. The curtain, you might remember, at his crucifixion, torn in two, the separation between God and man done away with. Even more than that, not just this space removed, but then the Spirit of God himself sent to dwell in the believer. It's an astonishing reality. No longer does God dwell with his people in a building. No longer is it the temple or the tabernacle or the tent where you came to meet with God. Now, God lives in his people. As we read in Ephesians chapter 2, In him, the whole building is being built together, growing into a holy temple to the Lord, in which you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. It's a marvellous reality that God now dwells with his people. 
that the church, it's, it's no longer a building. We're filming here in Ingleburn right now and we'll be at Glen Quarry in person on Sunday. Neither of these are the church. In some ways, I think our language is unhelpful to us because we still call it church. We still say things like, oh, I'm going to go to church, by which we mean I'm going to go to the building and meet with the people, or we say I'm going to go to church and do some painting. We we talk about uh, it's at the church, or it, we talk about the church as the building. I almost wish we'd choose a different word. We, we could call it, I don't know, the sanctuary, the chapel, the the brick place. It really doesn't matter. Because it is no longer the church. The church is now God's people. And as God builds his church, what he means by that is not that he does extensions to the toilet block, not that he paints and puts in a mezzanine or finishes finally the side wing that was always going to be built at Ingleburn and never got done, not that a new hall has been built. No, building the church is that God's people are matured, that those who are lost are saved that the Spirit dwells in those who are gods, that they may live to the praise of his name and the worship of his glory. That is the church of God. Here here is the church. In this picture, you can see the church in Ingleburn. You can see the church that came from Glen Quarry. You can see the church. Not the building. I mean, that picture is slightly confusing. In fact, here you go. In this picture, you can see the church. It's got nothing to do with the building and everything to do with the people. God dwelling amongst his people, building them up. And it's why our church vision is to see everyone presented mature in Christ. It's to see God's people, indwelt by the Spirit, built up as God's temple, where the true, right and spiritual worship of the Lord our God might occur in each one of our lives every single day. Now, I wonder if if you've been excited by the vision as we've heard it over the last month or so, if, if it's something that's gripped you, this desire to see men, women, children, those who are with us already and those who have yet to come, grounded in Christ and built up in Him. I wonder if you're excited, if you're on board with that vision or maybe you're a little bit daunted. Daunted that you are part of God's church. That you are somebody who God dwells in now by his spirit and that you are one little brick, you are one little piece of this new temple that God is building to the praise of his glory. Dare I say it even, this new temple, the place where God meets man, as through us, God's character is displayed to the world the Lord Jesus doing his work in us. Now, today, as we continue and as we finish our vision series, we're going to explore a little bit of what it means, the practicalities of implementing that vision. What does it look like in church life? How have we chosen to organise ourselves so that we might go about this vision? And the first thing to say is that As the body grows, right, God is growing his body and that means he adds more people to us as well as maturing us. As the body grows, life together changes. Now we recognise that we deal with different stages of things in different ways, right? You would, you would, uh, you would 
choose to act differently when you're doing with this stage. If, if we're just going to, let's use a plant as a comparison for a moment, right? If you're going to, when you're going to plant a seed is different to when it's a tiny little sapling, you treat it differently to when it's a bit bigger sapling, you treat it differently to when it becomes one of these, and you treat it differently again if it ever gets to this stage. So it is with church and church life. And by this, again, I'm talking about the, the gathered, the congregation, the group of God's people, the local expression of the heavenly church. As we grow, we have to interact and treat it differently. Now look, let me, let me tell you, uh, talk you through a little bit of what it might look like, what that seed and sapling and tree comparison might look like. You could have a house church, a church that's somewhere between, you know, one and maybe 40 people. And that has particular characteristics. That sort of church, everyone, it's a bit more like family. It's a bit more like an extended family gathering. Everything's a bit more democratic. Uh, decisions are made kind of with everybody. Uh, everybody knows everybody else. If there's a problem, you solve it by talking and working it through, right? It's, you could think a little bit of Christmas lunch. How do you, how does Christmas lunch happen? Well, someone says, oh, why don't you come to my place? And, right, Fred says, I'll bring the roast. And Jane says, I'll do dessert. Mum says, she'll do the decorations, right? You, you just kind of sort it out. Everyone pitches in a little bit and everything happens with everybody involved. Now, as you get a little bit bigger, you get to kind of small church, let's say 40 through to maybe 200 people. That becomes a bit unruly. You might still hope to know most people. You might still have a sense, at least, that you ought to know most people. You would still have a sense that you have direct access to the staff. You've employed one or two ministers, and you have a sense that if you needed them to, they would visit you. If you needed to talk to them, you could just pick up the phone and they'll have a coffee, they'll get to know you, you'll get to know them. Although decisions now, it's a little bit harder to make them democratically. 200 people, if you have all of that input and then try and find a decision that keeps everyone happy, you're never going to get anything done. And so decisions tend to happen a little bit more made by staff or the leadership of the church rather than quite so democratically. You start to see a little bit of fragmentation. No longer is everybody at everything. No longer are problems solved by everybody doing something together. Now, as you transition from a small to a medium church, and say 200 to do 400-ish, again, the nature of church changes again. It's now no longer possible to know everybody. Not even the staff or the leaders, not even the, the, the rector, nobody really can know and be friends with and have a direct discipling relationship with 400 people. It's just impossible. It's true also for church members. It becomes very difficult to know everyone, let alone to know them well. And so small groups begin to be the key, right? Whether that's a, a growth group or a Bible study group or a ministry team that you are part of, uh, however that might work out. Decisions now start to become, well, they become the realm of committees. We start to form groups of people who take on a particular responsibility for decision-making. Now, the staff end up spending a little bit more of their time with specific key leaders in the church and less with every individual member. In fact, it becomes a little bit difficult for everybody to have the same access to a staff member, to a leader. You start to need hierarchies. You've got a growth group with a leader, and so if you're a member of that growth group, that is your pastor, in essence. And if they have a problem, they can then move it up the line. And from there you go to large churches, right, 450 plus, and they change again 
Each small group almost becomes more like their own sized church, if you like. Now, different sized churches work completely differently. Different sized churches work completely differently. And so you ask, well, do we really need to organize church? Can't we just do what has to happen and make do? Now, for a house church, that may well work. You don't really need a lot of structure. You're small enough and the people are intimate enough that you can sort it out, you can work it through. But as you get bigger, remember, as it changes, we need to treat it differently. As you grow, complexity changes, the need for organisation changes. There's an example of that in Acts chapter 6. Let me read it for you. This is from Acts chapter 6 and verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, church is getting bigger, it's getting more complicated, the Hellenistic Jews, that is Jews who had adopted the Greek language and culture, complained against the Hebrew Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. Here's a problem, which when it was very small, was fine. There's one widow in your midst, you make sure you look after her. You got bigger, now there's 50 widows, and it's a little bit tricky. Whose job is it to distribute the food evenly? So the 12, the, the, the apostles, gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. That is, here's an example of church grows, complexity increases, some people can't manage it all anymore, we need to organise ourselves in a particular way. Now this leaves the question, begs the question then of where is Barney's? What size church are we? What degree of organisation do we need? How do we interact with one another? How do decisions get made? How do we grow? Now, let me show you this picture. This was from our vision document back in 2010, which sought to capture what church life looked like. And so you'll see things on there, like, for example, the circles, right, which were our three congregations, eight, ten and seven. Uh, Ingleburn was our one main church centre, We had a number of small groups, youth groups, a couple of other groups as well. You'll see our membership was 222 people, which I think that was the number of people that we had on the roll, not necessarily the amount of people who we would see every week. Um, Broken up into a number of adults and kids, one and a half staff members, some administration, a budget of 200,000 people. And then you'll see some of the text below, right? 126 people kind of most weeks, 130 people attending each week's. 150-seat church, 67 regular members in growth groups and a bunch of newcomers. That was the state of play in 2010. We also set the vision in 2010. We imagined, as the Archbishop back then encouraged us to do, what would it look like if 10% of the suburb came to church? If under God and miraculously by his hand, 10% of Ingleburn, which we were considering at that stage, was saved... What would church look like? Now, Ingleburn was 15,000 people. So we had, we set a vision for what church might look like with 1,500 people. Here's what it looked like. Now, you'll see similar elements. There was the circles, right? Three congregations had become six. The uh, 200 or so members had become 1,500 members. The facilities would need to change. Now, we didn't think we were good at running church for a thousand people. That's a very different type of church. So instead we thought, well, we're going to have to run three, four, five, six new congregations of a couple of hundred each to be able 
to match. 50 or so growth groups, 10 youth groups, a whole new church plant. You see, that's the box down the bottom there with its own morning and evening service. A number of other outreach groups, an increased budget and all the rest of it. Okay, so 2010 to 2020, we definitely haven't made it to the vision that we set for 2020, but under God we have seen growth. We're kind of somewhere in between though. So I went and just pulled out the numbers from the roll to get a comparable number to that 222, right? On our roll at the moment, we have 350 or so people. On any given Sunday, and this is right now, mind you, which is down by a reasonable amount to what we were pre-COVID, on any given Sunday, there's about 165 weekly attenders taking into account the four in-person services and the online viewers. Although the online viewers is very difficult to measure because any one view could be somebody who just clicks and leaves, or it could be a household with six people watching. So it's very difficult to measure that number. But last week we had 140 or so people in growth groups, which is nearly threefold on where we were, which is a fantastic growth. So where are we? Well, we're in this strange transition from being a small church to being a medium church. We have some of the relational closeness still of a small church, Right? There is a sense in which you can contact the staff and we will come and visit you. There is a sense in which um, decisions are made often by the leadership of the church, but there's a sense that we can know what's going on. And I think most people in our church have a feeling that they ought to know everyone, even if we've become too big for that to be realistic. Small groups are a very key part of what we do, but we're still feeling some of those growth pains as we head towards a size where it's starting to become a little bit unrealistic for the staff to be involved with every person's life, where decisions made by committees are starting to take over from decisions made by leaders. So the question is then, how are we going to organise ourselves to be able to manage it all? How are we going to cope? How are we going to make sure that people don't get lost in the cracks and church continues to grow, the body continues to grow well? Well, let me show you a little illustration before we get to it. Here's an oak barrel. Uh, I, um, I ha- this is not sponsored by the Happy Herbalist. That just happens to be a picture I found that was a very appropriate picture to what I wanted. Uh, although Happy Herbalist seems to be a website all about making kombucha. So, you know, there you go. You could do worse. Now, here's an oak barrel. The question is, how high can this oak barrel be filled? Imagine for a moment that the oak barrel is our church and each slat is one area of church life. Now, if they're all performing equally well we can fill the barrel all the way up to the brim. What happens, however, if one area of church life is not doing so well? If there's something going on where we are failing quite badly, what if it looked like this and some of the slats were shorter than others? How far would that barrel get filled? Well, it would only fill as far as the weakest point, the shortest slat. Now, of course, we're talking about God's church And God, by his supernatural power, is more than able to account for our weakness and to fill that barrel not only right up to the brim, but to keep right on going. Okay, that absolutely goes without saying. But we are called on to exercise wisdom, to organise ourselves, as the apostles did in Acts 6, in a way that is beneficial. We want to cater for and work at those areas where we are weak in order to turn them into strengths. Now, here's a little bit of how we've done it. We've adopted a model called the five M's. 
Um, you're not going to find this in the Bible. This is just one way of organising ourselves. I don't, I don't think that the Bible sets out any way of organising a church. There's lots of different ways of doing it. Pick one and use it. We've gone with the five M's. That is, we've broken up church life across five broad areas. And you can think of it as kind of getting people in the door, establishing them, getting them worshipping with God's people, maturing them, and then setting them loose to serve. So there's mission, as we reach out with the gospel into the world, calling people to Christ and his love. There's membership, as people hear the gospel and respond and come in among us. We want to connect people to Christ and to his community. Magnification, as we then gather together in our groups, we want gatherings that inspire God's people to live for his glory 24-7. Right? Our Sunday gatherings are not about Sundays. Our Sunday gatherings are about giving us the boost in the arm that we need to go out and live as God's people every day of the week. Maturity, we want to conform people to Christ and his likeness. And ministry, as we commit people to Christ and to his service. Now, we've taken those five M's and allocated them to different staff members. So, uh, mission now belongs to Joe. That was me previously. We did a swap for this year. Membership is still mine. Magnification is shared across the three of us. Joe takes responsibility for the preaching and the leading of our services. I take responsibility for all that involves music and tech. And then Adam has a responsibility for all the other things that go together to putting together, particularly the Bible readers, the prayers, organising the other people who are involved in running a Sunday. Maturity is is mine and then ministry is what Adam has been heading up and doing a fantastic job of it in the last little while. Now, furthermore, under each one of these five areas, and there's a reason I'm sharing all of this with you, by the way. You'll see it in just a moment. Under each of these five areas, they in turn can be broken up into particular teams or particular spheres. So, for example, mission, one of the easy ones, right? We can talk about personal mission. That is, we want everybody in our church to be sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we want our church together to help and assist each individual in sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We want to do uh, local evangelism. It's not just sharing the gospel with people we know, but sharing the gospel with people we don't otherwise have a connection with. We want to do event evangelism, where we run big things that are going to make a splash for the name of Jesus. And we want to have partnerships with our missionaries, with other local mission organisations, with different groups of that kind. And so you can see we've broken it down, and for each M, there's a, a set of teams as well underneath there, which you can have a look at in a moment, broken it down in a way that helps us think about church life. It's useful in three ways. It's useful for evaluating our church. That is, which of these areas are we deficient in? Which is the short slat that we need to help, that we need to prop it up? Over the last few years, we've really been conscious that the ministry, M, has been probably our shortest slat of equipping people for gospel work, of recruiting more and more congregation members into more and more roles of service. And so the outcome of that, the direct outcome, was employing Adam, setting aside another half-time staff member specifically to prop that area up, specifically to put a better slat into the oak barrel. Now we can use it to evaluate. We can use it then to make our staffing and leadership decisions. Okay, maybe we've got some areas of church life that are really humming, right? Let's say uh, that our leadership of church services is going fantastic, our small groups are pumping along, but in our membership, 
well, some of the things that we're doing in membership aren't doing great. Well, okay, we need to reallocate some of our leaders, put them into there. Now, all of that so far has been organisational. For you personally, this M matrix is also very helpful to, to assist you in working out where you can serve. Where is it that you are serving the body of Christ? I'm going to put this list back up again. And I want you to have a look over that list and reflect. Is there one or two of these areas that you are passionate about? That you are good at? That you are uniquely resourced for? Or that you just think we desperately, desperately need more help in? Because if there's one of those areas that ticks those boxes for you, then you should be serving there. We need you to be serving there. We need you to be doing your part for the body. The body only works as all the parts exercise their function, as we've seen a bunch of times the last few weeks. Now again, this is just an organisational tool. Okay, This is just something to help us. It's a, it's a trellis, if you like. Right? Here's a trellis. Trellises aren't particularly interesting <clears throat> in and of their own. They're just a bunch of wood put together in a particular shape. But the point of the trellis is to serve the vine. The point of the trellis is that as the plant grows, it might have structure that helps it grow well. This is a structure to help you as you reflect upon your own service and ministry. You know, they say of people at church that they feel like they belong when they have two friends and a ministry. That's when people start saying, oh no, that's my church. That's when people start reflecting that they feel like they belong. This is my home. Two friends and a ministry. I wonder if this might not be a helpful tool for you to reflect upon. How are you serving? Where are you serving? Can you imagine a church of 1,500 people? Can you imagine what it would look like to have hit that vision, having over a 1,500 people gathering every week to praise God, to proclaim his goodness and his mercy, to strengthen one another? I mean, look, for some of us, I don't know, that might be a scary vision. Maybe, maybe you really, really like house church. Maybe you really, really like the sense of family and, and just this little group of believers together. There's something precious about that. There's something so lovely and wonderful and powerful about it. But we must have a vision that seeks to save the lost. We must have a vision where we want to find God's lost sheep and bring them home. We must have a vision that wants to present everyone mature in Christ. Now look, I don't think we'd necessarily be very good at running a church of 1,500 people. Certainly not one service of 1,500 people. But it's why we're committed to planting churches. It's why we're committed that we, we, we are so keen over the next couple of years to research it, to work out how we're going to do it and to plant a church. Part of my time has been set aside this year exactly to explore that. But you know what? Back in 2010 when this vision was put forward and everyone went, you're kidding me, right? How could we possibly ever get to 1,500 people in just 10 years? <coughs> there was one little number that was fascinating. You see, back in 2010, if each congregation member, 
brought one person to Christ every two years, if each congregation member brought one person to Christ every two years, we would have got there. I hope that you've taken up your 316441 card, that you've started praying for four people for one year, that God might use you as the ambassador who takes the gospel to them, such that over the course of the next two years, maybe just one of them might come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because I tell you what, that would bring about some glorious growth. I hope that you've caught the vision that you know yourself to be forgiven by the Lord Jesus Christ, that you have experienced his blood that broke that curtain in two and brought access to God, and not only that, but brought his spirit into your life, that you know yourself forgiven by Jesus, empowered to live his way now, and that your eyes have been opened to the glory of God and your heart has been filled with a desire to see him glorified. I hope that's true for you. And that out of that vision, You in turn want to see this temple built up that our God might be praised all the more. That you would give yourself to the life of the disciple, growing in the Lord Jesus Christ, maturing in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you might be presented perfect, complete on the last day and dedicated, fiercely determined to see your brothers and sisters matured in the Lord Jesus. Just those people who, if you're at home right now, seated next to you on the couch, I hope, that you're watching church with someone, that that person, you want to see them mature in the Lord Jesus Christ. If they're still not saved, well, then you're going to pray for them and you're going to take every opportunity to share Jesus with them. And since you're sitting next to them, and if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ, I want you to know that they're going to be praying for you. They're going to be telling you about the Lord Jesus Christ. Committed to it. I want to finish with a quote by Charles Spurgeon, uh, a a very famous great preacher of yesteryear. This is what Charles Spurgeon said, If sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. If they perish, let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions and let not one go unwarned and unprayed for. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it still astonishes us that you would choose to dwell amongst men and all the more so that you would give us your spirit the barrier that existed between us and you, the barrier of sin dealt with. And now with forgiveness in the Lord Jesus Christ, you have made us into your temple. You have made us into the living worship that you deserve. You've made us into the place and the people that praise you for your majesty, for your goodness, for your grace. Father, would you help us as a church to use these structures, this organisation, as a way of furthering your cause. Father, may the trellis never overtake the vine. May our organisation never cause us to lose sight of the fact that what we are on about is seeing people matured in Christ. But Father, thank you for those who've come before us, who've thought wisely, who've handed down ways of doing things. Help each one of us, Father, to know our place in this, your body. 
to know how it is that we are to serve, how it is that we are to help others mature in Christ. Father, would you give us hearts that are sacrificially loving, such that we can't help but look at the people around us and want to see them mature in Christ and be prepared to pay the sacrifice to go through hardship, that that might be true. Father, give us a heart like Charles Spurgeon had, that there would not be one person out of the tens of thousands that live around us who has not been warned of hell and invited into your family, who has gone unprayed for. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.